Hello, and welcome to Big Fish in the Talent Pool with your host, Aaron Peterson, partner and global talent acquisition consultant with People Results. In each episode, Aaron interviews a corporate head of talent acquisition to shine a light on how they got there, what keeps them up at night, and their views on all the hot topics in TA today. There's nothing Erin is afraid to ask because she's been there. Now here's your host, Erin Peterson. Hi, everyone. This is Erin Peterson. I'm so glad to be joining you today with a colleague in our talent acquisition world. His name is Rob Drumgool, and he is the senior talent acquisition leader of the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma. Super interesting role, and uh, what came before that is really interesting as well. So I think you will really enjoy this conversation, and I'm um, looking forward to hearing more and sharing more with you about Rob. So Rob, why don't you say hello and greet my my listeners? Uh, well, good morning and good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you so much, Aaron, for having me on your uh, podcast on in, during these interesting times. Yeah, interesting times indeed. So we're going to talk about that. So if you're listening to this podcast sometime in the future, the time that we're discussing right now is the middle of the coronavirus pandemic, which everyone in business and life is dealing with, uh, not the least of which talent acquisition leaders. And so we're going to talk about that, but let's get to know Rob a little bit first. So Rob, you, as I mentioned, are the leader for talent acquisition for the Choctaw Nation. Tell us about the unique mission and market position that Choctaw fulfills. Well, the, the Choctaw Nation itself is the third largest Native American tribe in the United States with roughly 200,000 members. And uh, the geographic area where our tribe resides is a, a large chunk of southeastern Oklahoma in the state. And it's big enough where if you were in the far western end, it would take about a four-hour drive to get all the way to the eastern border. Um, and if you were on the southernmost portion in Oklahoma, it would take about four hours drive north to get our northernmost border. Oh, interesting. And we have about 11,000 employees, and we staff for everything from our six resorts and casinos, which at present are temporarily shut down as a result of uh, the pandemic. At the same time, we have nine healthcare clinics, we have schools, we have daycares, we have multiple gas and retail store locations. We also staff for our grocery stores in many of our rural communities, and those are ongoing. So when we say we hire for everything, um, we literally hire for everything. And um, so it's it's about, again, 11,000 employees and so it's a large company. I, I want to say revenue-wise, it's uh, about a billion dollars a year. It's like a giant, massive company, but it's a nation. My boss, Nate Cox, I always like to, to joke and call him. He's like the secretary of labor for a country, which is Choctaw Nation. So I don't know what my role would be, you know, officially. You know, I'm not like Secretary Munchen or anything, but um, um, it, in a way, it's a country we recruit for. And, and the human beings uh, involved make it, uh, make it what it is. Yeah, I mean, everything we do, all of the money and the revenue that we bring in funds uh, the resources for the tribe. So, I mean, what makes it a little bit different, if you're going to go to Las Vegas for an event, um, nothing wrong with going to Vegas. You put your money in the slot machine over at Caesars and have a great experience. Maybe you go see a show. What's different is when you come to one of our resorts in southeast Oklahoma, all of the money that goes back to the people. So it's paying for a doctor in rural Oklahoma. It's paying for, you know, a daycare facility. It's paying 
Um, it's paying for a college fund. It, you know, we are a not-for-profit organization, so it's not the shareholders or the tribal members themselves. It's a little bit it's different, but it's fun. The, the life, the life uh, of, of the Choctaw Nation. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah. so uh, I, I yeah. feel blessed to be part of such a, I mean, it's a noble mission and it's a tribe with a really long history from uh, the Trail of Tears and Louisiana and Mississippi being forced uh, to to relocate with the Relocation Act in the 1800s, and they're in Oklahoma and they're really successful. So it's uh, I'm just trying to help enable the tribe's continued success, and I'm just proud to be part of it in some small way. Thank you for giving us that context. Your sure. title is recruiting and workforce development leader plus job for a day. What is that? <laughs> okay, so there's three different programs under my purview. Um, right now, I have a staff of about 50 people, and I want to say almost all of them are women. Almost about 80% of them are actually Choctaw tribal members themselves. The easy part for most talent acquisition professionals to understand is I have about 30 recruiters. Position opens, we fill it. That's pretty standard. But there's two programs which I also head up. One of them is called Workforce Development. A better name for it would be more tribal advocacy. So we're always looking for ways. So any unemployed tribal member who comes into our office, we will help them find a job, hopefully for the nation. But if not for the nation, we actually work in getting them employed locally. I'm one of the few recruiting directors where I'm actually working to recruit people for outside jobs as well. And also Job for the Day is a special program where we help our tribal members all over our geographic footprint and we'll provide them with more entry-level employment. And Hopefully, those jobs can transition into more full-time, and that could be people from all walks of life, no experience necessary. We're really looking just to provide jobs for our tribal members across our geographic footprint, and we won't say no to anybody. If any tribal member goes to their council person and they want to work, we're going to try to find a way to get them to work. And those are entry-level jobs, but they often lead to full-time employment. So it's almost different types of employment-related programs at a state unemployment office. And, mm-hmm. but then at the, so I, those are the three areas that I had up. Sort of almost a 360 approach to workforce Absolutely. development. Also reminds me of the open hiring program that I've heard from Grayston Bakery in, in Yonkers, New York. Are you familiar with that? It's I, I am not. If you want to get hired, you come in and get on a list. And when your number's up, your number's up and you get a chance to prove yourself. You may or may not have the qualifications, but you are able to get hired on the basis of that you're someone who's willing to work. Does that Absolutely. Sound? Anyone who wants to work and they can pass our background check, we're going to put them to work. I, I will say of the 11,000 employees who work at Choctaw Nation, about 60% of them are not tribal members. You do not have to be a CDIB cardholder or Native American to work with Choctaw. I there's just not that. enough. No, there's okay. not enough. I mean, we have massive hotels and Native Americans only, we wouldn't be able to staff our facilities. We have a special hiring preference for tribal members, and we would like to fill every opening we have with a tribal member, but the reality is there's just not enough, especially, you know, in some of our more remote areas. I love the comprehensive way in which you approach your role. It sounds sure. to me like you're sort of boundaryless in terms of however I can help is how I'm going to help, whether it's... Well, that's, we're here for the tribal members. Yeah. Facing people elsewhere, bringing people uh, from the outside community. That's true because there's dignity in work. Am I right? We can go down to a rabbit hole, but I'll tell you a couple of stories about workforce development. So my manager for that program, Sharon Dotson, she's a tribal member herself. One of her hires this year was a gal who fled a domestic violence situation 
and showed up in Durant, Oklahoma, living out of her car with her kids. She didn't have clothes. She didn't have a place to live. Sharon helps her get housing, helps her find clothes. And then once she had a safe place to live, once she had food, once she had clothing, she also gave her a job. Now, that's not your traditional, hey, I got this director level placement. But when you're helping a single mom actually find a place to live and get employment and start her life over again, that's a pretty cool story, right? To enable something like that. Um, And at the same time, I have plenty of other recruiters you know, one, even during this um, pandemic, you know, we just hired a senior director of table games. So you see all the different pieces of it. So it's kind of neat. Yeah. But what is different about being an executive is you're kind of out of the trenches and it's your job to let other people shine. But it is neat to be part uh, to enable all of that to happen in some small way. You started your career in the military and you were a journalist. So how did that work? So, Yes. I started out as a journalist in the Army, and in a lot of ways, my experience was very much like the main character in Full Metal Jacket. 18 years old, basically joined the military and the service to get college money, and went into the 82nd Airborne Division and 18th Airborne Corps as a public affairs slash journalist in the Panama invasion back in the early 90s. And as well as the Desert Storm deployment in Saudi Arabia and Iraq in 1991. Also had the opportunity to couple years. But yeah, it was great. I got to interview people from all walks of life and write stories, take pictures. It was like a Stars and Stripes game. Terrific. Well, um, thank you for your statement. Yeah, it was all. a lot of fun. Oh, no, absolutely. It gave me Especially college those money, of us so. who've never worn a uniform. We really appreciate it. And uh, oh, so no. thank you for that. But I'm just curious, when you're 18 and you haven't been to college and you're asked to write like a journalist, how, how did that go? You just must have had, you know, the, the, the raw talent or how? Well, they, so the way, the way the military works is you take, you take an exam called the ASVAB. Basically, how you score, it gives you an opportunity to kind of choose your career path. Okay. I'd always had an interest in, in, in English and writing. And so I'm like, oh, they gave me this list of jobs that I could pick. I picked journalist and they send you to course basic training. And then after basic training, you go to, I think it was 13 weeks of journalism school. And in essence, they teach you how to write in 13 weeks, in essence, you know, at Fort Benjamin Harrison in Indiana. And then once you're done with the program, boom, you're thrust into basically a newspaper. <laughs> Here you go. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I guess it's like any other soldier or airman or um, seaman. You know, once you graduate, you're kind of thrust into the role. But it was a lot of fun. Um, again, it was more just talking to people and interviewing and writing, writing stories. And then you went on after the military to college and did actually major in English and philosophy. Is that yes. right? I yeah, got so my, I got my undergraduate degree yeah. in English literature with a minor in philosophy. And I had dreams of being a, uh, an English professor until I had to do literary criticism writing. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is not for me. <laughs> no, no one cares whether or not, you know, what Ernest Hemingway ate or if he hated women or not. You know, it was like, I just like to read for the stories. And I'm like, I, I, I don't want to, I didn't, I was not interested in like what made Shakespeare write what he did. Or I was just yeah. like, can't we just read Hamlet and enjoy it? Okay. Well, I guess you can't make a living doing that. Yeah. <laughs> so then I had to get a real job. Okay. All right. And that led to ROI. International, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. ROI International was a 
Hunter, it was a retained search firm specializing in high-tech and telecommunications, and that's where I started out. In essence, it was a 100% commission gig, and it was a bullpen-era agency where we were expected to do 100 dials a day and average three and a half hours of connect time a day. And they didn't have to lay anyone off because after three months, they just wouldn't pay you if you didn't get any placements. <laughs> so it was a great way to learn the industry. And I remember my boss, my interview process was we sat down on the, it was in downtown Seattle. And he, as people would walk by, he would just point at someone and he'd be like, tell me their story. And I'd be like, what do you mean? And he's like, tell me what their story. It would be like, well, you know, that's Frank and he's a construction worker and he's had a late lunch. And, <laughs> and so he just wanted a storyteller, you know, the whole sell your pen type of interview question. And my my first day, he, they gave me a script and they say, okay, start calling these numbers and here's your script. And anytime you have a question, write it down. And, you know, the rest is history. But that's how I learned technical recruiting. That's very cool. So storytelling before storytelling was kind of uh, in fashion in talent uh, acquisition. Yeah. So we were doing director level one above it. placement. Minimum fee was $25,000 back then. Um, so it was, it was real money, you know, for fees. So, and we would charge, you know, we were competing against Corn Ferry and Hydric and Struggle in those organizations. So it was a lot of fun. I had a great time. It was fantastic. And you lasted like four years, right? So that's probably dog years. Made some good money. (laughs) For you. Yeah. (laughs) It it, it was a little bit of Wolf of Wall Street. I'm not going to lie. You know, I mean, they would buy the beer and we'd play foosball. I mean, it was a little crazy, but it was fun. Help me help you. You want to just get right? (laughs) Oh, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I love it. Okay. And then you spent a little time at Internap, JP Morgan Chase. So you were sort of honing your sourcing and recruiting skills in roles there. Uh, Anything that sticks out for you from those experiences? Uh, I mean, you know, Internap was the internet bubble um, time frame at the time. You know, it was, you know, they threw a bunch of stock at me. And I always like to tell people that during that six months, I was actually a millionaire because the stock went from, you know, like $10 a share to like 120. And I had like 7 million in stock. And we were all millionaires for like this short time until the internet bubble burst. And we were all laid off. And then our stock wasn't worth anything. Yep. <laughs> and then the refi the boom started. Yeah, we all got fired at the same time. It, I mean, it was a fun experience while it lasted. Mm-hmm. You know, none of my stock was vested, so you know, I didn't make yep. a lot of money out of that. But um, then the refi boom started, and we all ran to banking just because banking was doing great. Hired lots, lots of commercial and residential real estate professionals. Did that mm-hmm. for a few years. It was a lot of fun. Outstanding. And then when you and I met for the first time, I was in Seattle. And- you were in more the Western part of Washington, but it was at a Northwest Recruiting Association professional meeting with a bunch of uh, our colleagues from other companies. I think it was when Jerry Crispin came and spoke to the NWRA meeting, like early 2014-ish. Yeah, absolutely. And, but you had been like for 12 years, or total 12 years, but by that time, you know, probably more like eight years with Pacific Northwest Labs. Yes, Pacific Northwest National Laboratories. Before, and I remember you talking about the very unique purple-spotted squirrels that you were trying to recruit. These oh, yeah. I was there for about 12, 13 oh. years. Um, I still think very fondly of them. And we're t- the timing is odd, but actually just yesterday, the president retweeted uh, about that organization, Battelle, which operated that lab. And some of the equipment that that lab makes is being used to actually um, cleanse uh, personal protective equipment for our health workers. Wow. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it's the weird 
timing that literally just yesterday that they made the news, um, made national press um, for, for helping out during this response. But yeah, the national labs have a unique scientific mission here in the country. And I had the opportunity to lead recruiting in the national security space and do some of their most hard to fill scientific job. At that particular lab, they had about 4,000 employees, 1,500 of which had PhDs. And we had to recruit scientists from all over the world to move into rural Washington state in the desert. So um, I remember having to, I'm like cold calling these. I remember offering this one scientist who's based in Paris, France, and his apartment literally he could see the eiffel tower out his window and i'm trying to talk to him about a job in the desert in washington state you know i'm like hey come on out you know you can do your carbon sequestration research out here um yeah it was a lot How did of fun. Go? did you get him oh yeah oh yeah he's still he's still there but but i mean it goes into storytelling right so like that particular candidate um specialized in an area of research where the united states it made more sense for him to move his research from France, which is more nuclear power centric, to the United States, which a lot of our energy is produced via coal. And we're looking for ways to make coal more clean or to store the emissions from coal underground. And so he moved his research from France or the United States. And that was a lot of fun. I did that for about 12, 13 years for that national lab, just doing the purple squirrel searches. And um, I still think very very fondly of them. This is the delight of a talent acquisition professional that you sort of change the world one person at a time while you're hiring people. Absolutely. But then, but then you ne- you just never know, honestly, where it pays dividends, like these people creating this machine that now helps us in the coronavirus. Go back to the culture of the Choctaw Nation, because what I recall you saying previously is that there is a sort of assumption or maybe some stereotypes about the culture that you have to help dispel. Oftentimes when I'm talking to someone from New York or San Francisco or Seattle, there's not a huge Native American population. So all they're going to know is maybe what they've seen on Dances with Wolves or um, what they grew up with, right? So it, it's, you're with Native Americans. So do you guys like burn incense and, and, and like, do they have a special nature religion? No, that's not true. The Choctaw Nation is very, I mean, if you go to our webpage, it is the first thing it says is faith, family, culture. They are a Christian nation. Every one of their buildings that you walk into actually has the Ten Commandments on it. We routinely open up our meetings with prayer. And it is a very Christian-centric organization, and faith is a big part of uh, the Choctaw Nation's way of life. And that, and when I tell people in New York or Seattle or, you know, Bay Area, they're like, what? Mm-hmm. Really? And I'm like, yes, absolutely. Faith, family, yeah. culture. You know, when I was selling that scientist in Paris, and how am I ever going to get a scientist to move from Paris to you know, the desert in Washington state, what worked for that particular scientist was the ability for them to do their research in the U.S. and make a difference with their research in the U.S. and help make the world a better place through their clean coal research. You know, that was their big sell, if you will. Most of my team are Choctaw tribal members, and there's no one better at selling the Choctaw Nation than the tribal members themselves because they're so passionate in telling the Choctaw story. So it's like, hey, you know what, you're a senior director of table games and you're in Las Vegas. And they might work for Caesars Entertainment, which is a fantastic company. We love Caesars. But to get someone to move from the the Strip in Las Vegas to move their family 
to Southeast Oklahoma, it is not the strip, right? You know, so it's like you have to be comfortable. But, you know, our average cost of a house is only $180,000. There's no traffic. There's a rural lifestyle. Do you like to hunt and fish? By the way, are you comfortable opening meetings with prayer? <laughs> you know, so some people really resonate to that. Now, if you're a young 20-something, maybe you love the strip and you want to go do your IT over with Caesars, or maybe you want to go work for Amazon in Seattle or Microsoft, which is fine. But there's going to be a, some portion of the population which they're going to be like, you know what? A $180,000 house sounds kind of nice and there's uh -huh. no traffic jams. Yeah, uh -huh. where do I sign up? Rural's looking really good right now during the pandemic. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's a lot of these, these cities are large urban populations that are suffering, sadly. People want to basically escape to the country. So an EVP that includes faith and living the rural life, having a little room to breathe. Absolutely. And, uh, and by the way, it's a diverse, I mean, it's a diversity. diversity. A lot of people will think, oh, well, I don't want to live to, you know, hick America. It's just a bunch of white folks and there's no diversity. Not true. Not true. You know, my team, again, is 80% Choctaw Native American. So I have the most diverse recruiting team I've ever been part of, and it's in rural Oklahoma. Then, whereas when I was in Seattle, I mean, I might only have, you know, 30% diversity. Mm -hmm. So out here, it's actually more diverse. Yeah. <laughs> so, and, and it's half the cost of living. So wow. I love it. I mean, Thank it's you for walking <laughs> us through that, that, I mean, speaking of storytelling, you're, you're a great storyteller. Ah, it really thanks. helps to kind of paint the picture of what it is that you're living. And oh, uh, no, it's, it's a blessing. Cool. It's a blessing yeah. for sure. I love it. Well, let's talk about how your organization is managing through coronavirus right now. So you lead a big team. I'm guessing things are a little quieter right now. What? How are you thinking about that in terms of productivity? And well, I mean, I can only speak from my personal experience, right? So as a leader, I'm a little bit unique with this virus where um, I'm a numbers person. You know, I'm really passionate about data. I got my MBA and, and did a lot of statistics. And I was actually watching this virus pop up in mid-January and was tweeting about it, was writing about it, even posted some LinkedIn articles. I want to say in late January, warning about it. Um, and I, some people were like, oh, Rob, you're crazy. This is not a problem. And I got a little bit of like, oh, you're chicken little. This is just a sickness. It's China. It's not here. And I posted some things about it and people were calling me a little bit alarmist. As a leader, probably my first concern was the safety of the team, you know, because yeah. at the time, we don't really have a strong work from home culture. Um, that's just not something that we've traditionally done as an organization. And so I actually pushed for my recruiters and staffing coordinators um, to be able to work from home in mass, um, which is just something that they hadn't ever done. Did you get any pushback? I did. From but leaders or from recruiters? Or no, there, well, actually from both. Um, there are some people who just love to come into the office. And I do remember one of my, and she knows who she is, but um, I was like, listen, it really might not be safe for you to come in right now. I mean, this is what social distancing means. And they're like, but I really love coming in. I'm like, I get that you love working, but you know, it might be the right thing to work from home. <laughs> so there were literally some recruiters who I would have to have passionate conversations with it. they listen you don't have to come in well that means i can come in then right i'm like well <laughs> you know i'm a little bit libertarian so i hate like telling yeah. people like no yeah. you will not come in and, but i'm like how do i say this yeah. in such a way as like you know what this is what social distancing means and on the on the flip side it, it's not that the leaders weren't supportive because they ultimately were 
but it's just something that they had never done as an organization and we had to get support and like, well, we've never done that. What does that mean? Are they really going to work? So that was probably my first move was just the safety of the team. Now with our casinos shut down, which is our primary revenue source, now it's just how do you keep a recruiting and and sourcing team engaged when, you know, there's not a lot of hiring going on. And I've had an opportunity to schedule multiple trainings with people like Amy Miller from Google and Amazon. She's going to teach us uh, next week. I got Katrina Kibben on Wednesday. She's going to teach us about job descriptions. I got a a well-known sorcerer, Trish Werdica, who's going to teach us about sourcing. So I've lined up some, you know, people who you normally podcast, and I'm going to have them kind of teach the team to kind of keep their swords sharpened, you know, during this time. And I'm, you know, we're trying to keep, have them source and fill the pipes. And at the same time, there's a possibility that, you know, we could get furloughed here in the next three weeks. So we don't know, right? So it's how do you keep their spirits up? But even in a worst case scenario, if we are furloughed, um, which we hope it doesn't happen, but in the event it does, um, at least we have healthcare. The casinos will reopen their doors someday. You know, hopefully that's in May, Um, you know, maybe even sooner. I don't know. Um, But when that that day happens, they're going to need the recruiting team. But I don't know, what's that old Chinese proverb? May you live in interesting times. Um, Yeah. So first and foremost, it's just, and then it's like, how do you, you want social distancing, but at the same time you want your team, you know, I, I have single moms who work for me, who depend on paycheck to paycheck and I want them to get paid. You know, yes. I mean, they got bills to pay, but then at the same time, we've got grandparents, a lot of them. It's like Sophie's choice. What do you do? Oh. If you go back too soon, you get more people sick, but then if, if you're out too long, you're not going to have a job. And you know what? I appreciate you depicting that in the very imperfect way that it is. It's There is not a one way to handle this. And we're, we're all figuring it out as we go yeah. along. So, all we could do is share the information. You know, whatever the chief, what our chief and leaders decide to do, we're going to do. Of course, you know, that's, there are elected leaders for the nation. And um, yes. we trust that they're going to make the best decision for the safety of the employees, our associates and our guests. And you know, I look forward to the day when it when reopened, but I hope it's just not, you know, before it's safe. But I don't think they're going to, you know, do anything to hurt hurt anyone. So, sure. yeah. but, it, but you know, this literally could be another 30 days. So uh, the president spoke, I mean, this is today's March 30th. The president spoke yesterday, said 30 more days of social distancing. So yeah. who knows how long this is. At least be. 30 days, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah, absolutely. And so if things were normal, if you can imagine with me for a moment, sure. I always love to ask leaders about what their what what sort of their pet, pet project, or more specifically, TA technology. Is there a uh, particular technology that, if things were normal, you would be pursuing to implement? Uh, well, we just I, you now I know this sounds you'll laugh at this, but um, prior to my arrival, I've only been here about nine ten months, but we had we didn't even have LinkedIn Recruiter. Um, that was actually something that this uh, tribe had never invested in. Mm-hmm. And it took me about three, four months to actually negotiate with LinkedIn and our attorneys. I actually had to get LinkedIn's terms of service changed so they could operate with the nation. Because the way LinkedIn's language in terms of service is, we are not subject to the OFCCP or EEO um, guidelines because we're our own sovereign nation. And so I actually had to get the attorneys of LinkedIn and the nation's attorneys negotiating tribal sovereignty, (laughs) 
which was very interesting, but we got it accomplished. You know, something that the LinkedIn attorneys were comfortable with, which our attorneys were comfortable with, so we could protect the tribal sovereignty. And I got that implemented for the recruiting team. We just launched a brand new um, applicant tracking system, Oracle, the cloud. I mean, it's it's part of our Oracle HRIS mm-hmm. implementation, which is ongoing right now. Facebook recruiting is actually working very successful with us. So we've had a lot of uh, success with that. You know, we've actually got our scraping turned on with Indeed, LinkedIn, and as well as a job site for us, which is called eachcareers.com. Um, Each Careers is one of the leading hospitality and gaming center job boards. We're doing that. And I'm also finally getting my team involved in um, actually Jerry Crispin's, you mentioned him earlier, um, we're part of Career Crossroads. So we're working with Career Crossroads, Chris Hoyt and Jerry Crispin. They've been fantastic. You know, we intended on visiting or attending some of the Career Crossroads events. So I'm teaching them and introducing them to some of the senior leaders in talent acquisition. Prior to this pandemic hitting, I actually had two of my managers set up to speak at four different events for the first time in their careers. Wow. So I was helping to uplift them and get them visibility into the talent acquisition community. So one of my staffing managers, Amber Colwell, was scheduled to speak at Oklahoma's uh, SHRM conference. And Sharon Dotson, my head of workforce development, who I'd mentioned where she helped that uh, the single mom uh, find a place to live, she was going to be speaking with direct employers, also with ERE. So I had two of those speaking gigs lined up for them. So I'm just trying to uplift them. Yeah. And, and all this in nine months. Yeah. Yeah, it's been fun. Yeah, no rest, right? I mean, I don't... Well, I mean, it's more... Okay. Okay. In fairness, we're like 10 months now. Well, it's the th- it'll be maybe officially 11 next month in April. So good for you. Wow. Yeah. Oh, no, absolutely. And, uh, and with, with mission, love it. And so speaking of mission, it is coming upon all of us as leaders to lift up the next generation of leaders. You're already sure. doing that in a number of ways. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious when you have young professionals come to you and seek your advice on what it takes to become a talent acquisition leader. What do you say? What's your best advice? Uh, I would say servant leadership. I just think about when I just had my most recent staffing manager interview, the gal who we ended up hiring, Amber, she's just fantastic. And um, if you're listening, um, I'm going to talk about you for a second, Amber. So so why did we pick Amber? Um, I had, by the way, the two other finalists in that were fantastic candidates. Some would have been great hires as well. But why we picked Amber was just she's a servant leader. She's humble. And everything about what she does is for her employees and team first. And I think what makes a good leader, at least in my experience, having been in the military and having worked for some great staffing managers, has been when it's not like you work for me, it's we work for them. So it's you know, what What are they going to do to enable the success of their team? How are they going to uplift them? How are they going to fight for them? They're almost like that union steward in a way, right? They're that person who's really trying to look out for the best interests of their team. I want someone who is going to get in my face and push for a little bit more salary and, you know, pound on the table like, no, you're going to push a little bit more. Here's why, you know. And, it, you know, if hiring managers, hiring managers will complain because that's what hiring managers do. God bless them. You know, it, but sometimes you can be an advocate for that recruiter. You know, okay, they're going to listen to the story, but then find out what happened. Okay, well, the reason why it's taking you so long is because you've been on travel for two weeks and you wouldn't do any interviews. Okay, so let's work on that. You know, someone who can get in that, be that advocate for that recruiter. 
So that's that's no probably been the yeah be uh, a strong voice and yet serve a servant leader yeah. and actually one of the that well you know p- part of uh, the values of uh, Choctaw Nation is servant leadership. So it's just having that point of view, if you will, where you're not they don't work for you. It's more you're working for them. And I would say to any young recruiter, if they have aspirations to move into some type of staffing leadership or management position, if they go into it with that point of view, it's going to help them. Technical aptitude paired with servant leadership makes for a great combination in hiring a staffing manager, in my opinion. Yes, love it. And I would say that is a great place for us to wrap up. I completely agree with you. I really appreciate the perspective. And especially, again, in these very interesting times, I think our true character is shown and being servant leaders, it seems, is never a bad idea, but especially when the, the nation needs us more than ever. Oh, absolutely. Globe. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, I mean, the, uh, well, my, my entire leadership team are women. <laughs> 80% of my team are women, and they're almost all moms. So it's, it's uh, I, I look at it as a distinct honor to help enable their success. And if in some way I help make a difference, then, you know, I'm, I'm very fortunate. So. It's all gratitude for me. I'm just very grateful. Yes, indeed. Well, thank you, Rob. This was a terrific connection. Thank you so much for your time and your leadership and your example and for being a guest on Big Fish in the Talent Pool. I look forward to listening and and to catch your other episodes. And if you're ever looking for other people to chat with, just let me know. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Big Fish in the Talent Pool. This podcast is independently produced in collaboration with ERE.net, and we would love to hear your feedback. You can email Aaron directly at E-P-E-T-E-R-S-O-N at people-results.com. You can also follow Aaron on Twitter at Aaron McPeterson, connect with her on LinkedIn, and learn more about her practice at people-results.com.